Good morning. My name is Jordan. The Old Testament reading is found in Ecclesiastes 7 from the message. You learn more at a funeral than at a feast. After all, that's where we'll end up. We might discover something from it. Crying is better than laughing. It blotches the face, but it scores the heart. Sages invest themselves in hurt and grieving. Fools waste their lives in fun and games. Take a good look at God's work. You could simplify and reduce creation's curves and angles to a plain straight line. On a good day, enjoy yourself. On a bad day, examine your conscience. God arranges for both kinds of days so that we won't take anything for granted. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Brooks, and the New Testament reading is found in 2 Corinthians 2, 3-7. through 7. May the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ be blessed. He is the compassionate Father and God of all comfort. He is the one who comforts us in all our trouble so that we can comfort other people who are in every kind of trouble. We offer the same comfort that we ourselves received from God. That is because we received so much comfort through Christ in the same way that we share so many of Christ's sufferings. So if we have trouble, it is to bring you comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is to bring you comfort from the experience of endurance while you go through the same sufferings that we all also suffer. Our hope for you is certain because we know that as you are partners in suffering, so also you are partners in comfort. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Steve. Thank you for standing for the reading of the gospel found in Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 50. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Ali, Ali, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The gospel of the Lord. Remain standing as we pray, if you would. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you this morning. And through it all, we ask that you would help us to see you and to hear you and to love you, Lord. We thank you for your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'm, I'm not sure how you feel about the book of Ecclesiastes now, if you're tired of it, if you're angry at it, if you're more confused by it or not. But just out of curiosity, how, how many of you, this is kind of your first time really slowly working through the book of Ecclesiastes? Um, yeah, that's great. I mean, it's not usually found on refrigerator magnets, you know, uh, except for he makes all things beautiful in his time. We like that one. But this is an interesting book. It falls in the category of literature in the Bible. So this is the thing about the Bible is there's several different kinds of literature, kinds of books um, in the Scriptures. Some of them are more a narrative. 
Um, some, but even those narrative are not, it's not pure history. It's designed to teach. In fact, the Old Testament, when, when the Hebrews, when the Jewish people would, would categorize their own scripture, they would categorize it in three different headings. There was the teaching, the Torah. Then there was the prophets, which many of the books that we consider to be quote unquote history, like First and Second Samuel and all of that, actually fit under what the Jewish people called the prophets. Because they're, they're not writing pure history as we think of it. It's not documentary history. They're saying, look, th- this is the way that the Lord is shaping us as his people. So you have the teaching, the prophets, and then you have the writings. And within the writings, because that sounds sort of ambiguous, uh, you have a lot of the poetry stuff. And you have a little sub-genre, if you will, called wisdom literature. And wisdom literature is very different than anything else that we encounter in the Bible. It, it's not uh, a list of rules or principles, which is what always sort of cracks me up with, with folks who, who take the book of Proverbs as if it were your rules for life. Because Proverbs kind of works that way, but it kind of doesn't. In fact, Proverbs on purpose will put two contradictory bits of advice right one after the other. You know, there's the one that says, do not rebuke a fool in his folly or he'll hate you. And then after the very next verse is, rebuke a fool lest his folly be the end of him or something like that. And you're like, well, which is it? (laughs) And, And wisdom literature is designed to be like that. It says these are generally true sayings, but it takes wisdom to know which to apply when. And it takes some wrestling through it. So Ecclesiastes is not, um, it's not a do-it-yourself book. It's not a, a list of instructions. It's not, you know, that old um, saying back in the day, the B-I-B-L-E is basic instructions before leaving earth. No, it is not that. The Bible is not that. And Ecclesiastes most certainly is not that. But it does invite us to wrestle and to say, God, what, what am I missing and one of the things we've said over and over again, one of the things Ecclesiastes does is it confronts our overly optimistic view of the world. You know, that view that you tend to have in your early 20s, like, life is amazing. I, and there's the Christian version of it, too. I'm going to change the world. I'm going to save the nations. I'm going to be a da 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 I'm going to do all this stuff. And then, like, 10 years later, you're changing diapers and waking up with colicky babies. You're like, what is going on with my life? And Ecclesiastes says, you know, you should probably think about this. Even the good has its limits. Even the stuff that brings you joy is not as great as you think it is. But then Ecclesiastes doesn't just confront our optimism. It sort of redeems our cynicism. It says, okay, hang on, hang on, hang on. The goal is not just to get you to spiral here. The goal is to say, could there be something more? Could there be something beyond this? And so the teacher is sort of the the lead character in this book. The teacher who by tradition is Solomon is kind of saying, look, this is what life under the sun is like, but this is how we relate to God. And so we've covered a lot of things. We've talked about pleasure. We've talked about knowledge. We've talked about um, um, toil and and work and time. Uh, We've talked about death. Uh, We talked about um, worship last week, what we do when we come to the edges of ourselves. And today, I wanted to talk about the value of sorrow, the value of sorrow. Now, to be honest, this sounds like an oxymoron, the value of sorrow. I'd rather not. I mean, why don't you just, why don't you word it, Glenn, as the, the, the bummer of sorrow, <laughs> you know, the, the tragedy of, of the fact that there is sorrow, this, this, you know, why the value? What, what do you mean there's value? Well, listen to the way the teacher words it. 
Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2. It is better to go to a house in mourning than to a house party. You're like, really? Because that is everyone's destiny, and the living should take it to heart. Aggravation is better than merriment. You're thinking, what kind of parties did Solomon go to that he's thinking that aggravation is better than merriment? You know? Because a sad face may lead to a glad heart. And then he says this, the wise heart is in the house that mourns, but the foolish heart is in the house that rejoices. Again, very strange. Well, what, what do you mean? And you heard the message paraphrase of it where it says, you know, the fool sort of spends his life in fun and games. But the wise kind of says, yeah, you know what, when things are hard, there's actually something worth learning from. Our struggle with sorrow is that we don't like it. And we'd rather escape it. We'd rather minimize it. We've, we've hinted at this so far in the series. One of our classic ways of dealing with sorrow is to prevent the possibility of sorrow. And you prevent the possibility of sorrow by detachment, by kind of detaching yourself, by saying, well, I don't really care. No, that doesn't bother me. I don't love my job. And so we sort of have kind of a, 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 these little influences in our day where nobody wants to care that much about anything. Because we're so afraid of being disappointed or being sad that you say to someone, dude, how's your new job? Eh. How's this new city? Eh. How's, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. Eh. And everything is just sort of meh. Because we've trained ourselves to detach. I don't really want to invest my heart in this because I, she may break up with me. He may never call me back. This job, I may lose it next week. So let's just sort of keep everything at arm's length and kind of say, well, how, how's this? How's that? Detached. Just stay a little bit distant. Or if that's not the strategy that we use, then the other strategy is distraction. If detachment seems like too much work, then distraction at least is a little easier because little losses and sadness and sorrow happens all throughout life. But man, if we could just keep ourselves moving, if I could just keep refreshing Facebook on my phone and maybe just keep watching cat videos or maybe, maybe if I, maybe <laughs> how that doesn't lead to more depression, I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> Or, 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 or maybe Netflix, the great balm of our day. When you're feeling blue, let's just see what's on Netflix. And you just keep it moving. Nobody ever stops. You don't want to stop. You don't want to leave yourself alone. You don't want to let a screen be off. I mean, I was thinking last night as I was watching um, something on Netflix. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I was thinking... How odd it was that I was sitting and actually watching an episode of The West Wing, which I adore, and, and not having a laptop open or a phone in my hands. And I thought, remember when we used to watch TV without another screen open too? I mean, this is how bizarre we are now. It's like, oh, there's one screen, there's this, and then there's my laptop over here. So I'm texting my friend, catching up an email, and laughing at the thing on Netflix. It's like, what are we doing? What we might be doing is distracting ourselves from the deeper sorrows we're trying to avoid. I don't really want to think about the sadnesses in my life. I don't really want to think about the, I'd rather not. But Solomon says, the wise heart is in the house of mourning. And the fool flits it all away with fun and games. 
Why is there value to sorrow? First of all, let's talk about what we mean by sorrow. Okay, when I'm talking about sorrow today, I don't simply mean the mood, the mood of sadness. Now, when sociologists and psychologists talk about emotions, they distinguish between a mood and an emotion. A mood has no object, has nothing that is, it is directed toward, okay? So you might wake up in the morning in a bad mood, but nothing's really wrong. Nobody's really upset. You're just in a foul mood. It happens. But it's not yet an emotion until it's directed at someone, until you get out of the house, get on the road, and get cut off on the interstate. Now you're angry at someone. Now you're upset about something. Now you have a full-fledged emotion because that now has an object. When I'm talking about sorrow, I'm not talking about the mood of sorrow. I'm talking about the emotion, meaning the emotion of sadness that is targeted at a certain object. What object? Again, through the great amount of studies, both from psychology and sociology, different, of the, different ones, parts of the social sciences, Sadness is always correlated to loss. Sadness is always correlated to loss. It's lo it is losses in life that triggers the emotion of sadness, even when we can't articulate it. But here's the thing. Loss comes in all forms. We sometimes think of loss as like the great tragic loss, a death, an accident, a loss of a loved one. Those are no doubt significant losses. But do you know there are all kinds of losses that happen throughout life? There's the loss of an end of a season of parenting. There's a loss that comes from the end of a school year. There's a loss that comes from a transition in jobs. There's a loss that sometimes comes as friendships ebb and flow because did anyone tell you friendships ebb and flow? And sometimes the friends that are super close hanging out all the time and all of a sudden it changes and you're not sure exactly why. There are all kinds of little losses. And sometimes we have this sadness because sadness is, a, is correlated to loss and we're not sure why. Ecclesiastes says it's worth thinking about why. Because here's the thing. If sadness is related to loss, loss is related to love. You're sad about things that, you've, that you lose because you've loved them, if even a little bit. Well, I kind of love that little ice cream shop. Why'd they close down? I kind of loved it, whatever it was. And I kind of love old, those old vacations we used to take with my family. Now that I'm a grown-up, how come I don't get to join those anymore? How come nobody pays for me to fly home to the lake or whatever, you know? <laughs> Sadness is related to loss. Loss is related to love. So when Solomon says, it's better to be in the house of sadness, I think it's because it's a chance to really explore our loves. Listen to what he says later on in the chapter. Consider God's work. Who can straighten what God has made crooked? When times are good, enjoy the good. Simple enough. And then he says, when times are bad, consider. Reflect. God has made the former as well as the latter so that people can't discover anything that will come to be after them. Well, that's a little morbid, but he does understand something of the sovereignty of God. He understands something here of, of God being above both the good and the bad. Again, Peterson's paraphrase known as the message. 
On a good day, enjoy yourself. On a bad day, examine your conscience. God arranges for both kinds of days so that we won't take anything for granted. I like this. When things are good, it's great. Keep moving. Enjoy it. But when things are bad, that's not the time to keep moving. Does this make sense? It's great to enjoy it and keep moving when things are good. But when things are bad, that's actually a gift, an opportunity to slow down, an opportunity to examine your conscience, to say, what's going on here? So I want to say three things this morning about what sorrow does with love, how sorrow relates to love, and why, possibly why, there is value in sorrow. The first is this. Sorrow actually proves our love. I love the way the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, he says, not to lament is to deny the reality of love. Not to lament is to deny the reality of love. Sorrow actually proves your love. When you're sad about something or someone leaving or moving on, it actually is a proof that you've loved them, that you've loved this season, that you've enjoyed their company. Do you know the opposite of love is not hatred? The opposite of love is not even anger. The opposite of love is indifference. The opposite of love is indifference. It's the, it's the refusal to invest, the refusal to let another person move you. Sorrow proves our love because it says you've invested your heart in something, in someone, and now you've lost it. That's, it's not great that you've lost it, but it is great that you've given your love to something. Love is not dispassionate. In fact, in a very strange way, all of the the emotions that sometimes are considered dark emotions, jealousy, anger, they are distorted, sometimes distorted outcomes of actually loving. It's because you actually love someone that you feel sad for them or angry at them when they're doing things that hurt themselves. Does that make sense? That all of these emotions that we think, oh, no, I don't want to feel, I don't want to feel, I don't want to care. I don't care. I don't care. And actually to be truly human is to care, even if it results in disappointment, anger, sometimes jealousy. It shows that you're invested. Sorrow proves our love. C.S. Lewis, decades ago, wrote a thin little book called The Four Loves, and he explores uh, some of the different human loves and what happens when they are not mixed with divine love, and then what happens when they are mixed with divine loves. But right in the beginning of the book, he gives this amazing little paragraph. He says, there is no safe investment. We could stop right there, right? To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. No cats, no dogs, no pets. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. 
It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Why does he say that? Because even faith is the risk of an investment of love. Even to believe in God is the risk of being vulnerable. It puts out that this fact of what if he's not the God I thought he was? What if he's not the God I want him to be? And so if you decide to live your life and say, I'm not going to invest in it, I, I want to be safe above all, not only will you not love others, you actually in the end won't even be able to love and trust in God. And Lewis says, that's damnation. And the only place outside heaven that's safe from all the risks of love is hell. But you don't want it. You don't want it. Sorrow proves our love. But secondly, sorrow purifies our love. Sorrow has a way of purifying our love. Not right away. Not in the moment of grief. Probably not anytime soon after a loss. It might be years later. It might be months later, and for some, depending on the degree of the loss. But a long time after that moment of grief or of loss, you'll reflect, and you'll consider, and you'll examine your conscience, and you might ask yourself, was I overly upset about this or that? What does my sadness tell me about the ordering of my loves? St. Augustine wrote quite a bit on this in his spiritual autobiography, The Confessions. And Augustine is writing much after the fact, reflecting as a much older man on some of the things that were so sads him, the loss of a friend, and then later the loss of his mother. And one of the things that we learn from Augustine is sorrow is kind of like the dashboard of a car. Actually, a lot of our emotions are a little bit like the dashboard. And so what we try to do is we try to eliminate the emotion, but that's just like turning off the change, you know, change oil light on the dash. Sure, you can make that light go away, but you still haven't changed the oil. Do you see what I'm saying? So this is what happens. We feel this emotion of sadness or sorrow, and we think, oh, I don't, I don't want to feel this way anymore. I, I need something to get me out of this sadness. And all you're doing is disconnecting the alarm light on the dash but you haven't actually changed the oil. Friends, this is the great lie of our day. The lie of our day is that to be human is to just have emotions that are like this. Steady Eddie, baby. Just no lights going off on the dashboard. No, 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 I don't have any alarms going off. I don't need to check engine. I don't need to change oil. What is that wrench anyway on the dashboard? And if something comes on, no, 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 give me something. I just need more coffee. I just need something else. Give me something to medicate this. I need to medicate this sadness because I don't actually want to think about the losses in my life. Please hear me. Sorrow can be an invitation to purify your love if 
you'll take the time to look at the check engine light. If you'll take the time to say, wait, 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 can I examine my conscience? What's going on here? Why was I so bothered at the ending of this relationship? Did I overinvest? Why was I so mad about this job ending? Or the, did I overinvest? Sorrow is a chance to purify your love, to say, wait a minute, God, is there something in my life that is disordered here? Now, in our culture, we, we're very cautious about speaking about anything being disordered. No, 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 you're okay, I'm okay, just be you. But the Scripture says, the wise heart is in the house of mourning because it's in sadness that you begin to say, what, is something out of order here? And Augustine, in his prayers and confessions, you may not agree with all the places he lands and all the things he says about his sadness, with, about his mother's passing and all that, but one of the things he does is he teaches us to look deeper into our hearts. Listen to one of these quotes. Grief eats away its heart for the loss of things which it took pleasure in desiring. There were things that you desired. You took pleasure in desiring them, but then you lost them because it wants to be like you. He's talking to God. He's saying all of these things, the, the, the great friendships, the great companionships, they're just trying to be like you from whom nothing can be taken away. For Augustine, sorrow was a time to say, it's great to love these things and these people and these experiences, but I can't give them my ultimate love because they're not strong enough to hold it. And so sorrow is a chance to say, not only are you investing, that's the first thing, it proves our love, but also are you over-investing? Are you putting too much into this? The final thought is that sorrow has a chance to point us to a love beyond us. Sorrow points us to a love that is beyond us. There's a chance for sorrow to do this if we'll let it. Some of you may have seen this, but yesterday my wife Holly posted a, a blog on her um, on her blog site, awakeningwonderblog.com. There you go. There's a little plug for you, babe. Um, but I, I, we hadn't talked about the sermon for Sunday because we, we don't usually. Um, but she had written this whole thing a couple weeks ago, and it was about the sadness that sort of happens just in everyday life, not like big tragedies, just, just every you know. And she'd written it about kind of coming back from our trip, you know, um, several weeks ago to England and it was really great. And then I stayed on and she came home <laughs> um, with jet lag and, and down from a really high high back to like four kids and all of the reality of that. And then, and then on top of it, just stuff ending, school year ending, final stuff, just no, you know, things that you wouldn't do again. And, and then on top of that, you know, that Seattle weather we had for about a month, just clouds and rain. Just, I, mean, I, I mean, I think there were several of us that was like, <laughs> you know. And she talks in, in this post about how sometimes acknowledging even some of those little sorrows has a way of pointing you to a deeper longing. 
Because in the end, what you're longing for is not the perfect job or the perfect husband or the perfect wife or the perfect child or the perfect vacation. In the end, what you are longing for is Christ himself. I know that sounds like, oh, there you go, your little churchy answer again. Blah, blah, blah. Jesus, 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 you know. (laughs) I get it. I get it. There are, again, you've heard me say this in this series, finding joy. There is joy to be had in this life under the sun. But ultimate joy comes beyond it. Ultimate joy comes outside of these things, beyond these things. And we've talked about how the good gifts in life have a way of pointing us to the great gift, the greatest gift of all. But do you know it also works in the reverse? If little joys can point us to the greatest joy, do you know that little sadnesses can point us to the one that will never fail? That little disappointments, little longings can actually say, you know what I'm really aching for? I'm longing for something that no child, no job, nor vacation could ever give. I'm longing for something. Do you know your sadness can actually be an invitation to intimacy with Jesus. When I do premarital with couples, one of the exercises we work on is to say, let's move beyond the frustration, this, this sort of fight, and let's try to look a little bit deeper. What's the underlying longing or fear that is giving this situation so much emotion? What's the underlying fear? Well, it's the fear that I'll never be good enough for you. Or what's the longing? It's the longing to, to be known. And intimacy happens when we let another person actually see into us, not just in the surface stuff about our stories and our backgrounds and our preferences and what flavor of ice cream we like. And intimacy happens when you let another person in to the longings and the fears that are deep beneath the surface. But do you know that's the same way intimacy with Jesus works. Sometimes we only want to relate to Jesus with the surface stuff. Oh, Jesus, I love you. Thank you. Faith, church, worship, just so great. I just love it. I just love it. I got this other stuff here. It's kind of dark. Let's leave that alone, Lord. And there's these things that be kind of mulling over, but I just, let's be happy. Hallelujah. Jesus is saying, you, you, you want intimacy with me, then let even your sadness be an invitation into intimacy. Let your sorrow be an invitation into intimacy with Jesus. See, what Solomon couldn't see is that God would one day come to earth. And suffer in all the ways we suffer. The betrayals of friendships, the disappointments, the loss of a friend. So much so that Jesus was called the man of sorrows. Now that's odd, isn't it? Sort of thought if Jesus was anything like the preachers I see on TV, he would be a man of prosperity. And a man of faith. And a man of victory, bless God. 
Why would the Son of God be a man of sorrows? So that even in your lowest moment, your sorrow can unite you with Christ. This is what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, look, we've, we've suffered these things, but you know, in, in a strange way, it actually bonds us to Christ and his suffering. And then Paul goes on and says, and in, a, in kind of another strange way, it binds us to you guys because we're suffering together. And Paul is saying, look, something about sorrow can be an invitation to intimacy with God. I've told you that over the last year and a half or so, I, I've... I see a spiritual director about once a month. The spiritual director is different than a counselor. Someone kind of helps you pay attention to the Spirit's work in your life. And we do a lot of talking. Sometimes we do a lot of praying. We meet about once a month. And there was a time last year where I, I, I was at the lowest point that I've ever been. And, and he said, Glenn, it seems like you're, you're trying to kind of distance yourself from that part of who you are. Like, yeah, yeah, like, I feel like I shouldn't feel this low. Like, let me, let's just, you know. And he says, Glenn, it just seems like you're sort of trying to stand above yourself and shame yourself and judge yourself and say, G -g 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 change, get, let's get back to how it, it was. And he says, but Glenn, do, do you know that even that low place is an invitation to be with Jesus? Because Jesus has gone to the depths. Jesus has gone all the way to the depths. Friends, the gospel is not come and be united to Christ in the happy moments. The gospel is come and be united with Christ in the heights and in the depths and in everything in between. You can find out that neither height nor death, nor life nor death, nor angels nor demons, nor past nor present nor future can separate you from the love of God. That in all of it, there is an invitation to move beyond yourself. So we don't need to have fractured selves. We don't need to have fragmented selves. It's like, oh, that's kind of the dark part of me. This is the, the real part of me. You can have wholly integrated selves that are broken, but that are beloved, deeply and truly beloved. The gospel agrees with our brokenness, but the gospel bestows on us a belovedness that we could have never given to ourselves. Isn't it amazing that the thing we long for the most is the thing we actually can't give to ourselves? You can have all the self-help, self-talk you want, but you can never bestow on yourself the kind of belovedness you really long for. But even in that midst of sorrow, those little places of the cracks and the brokenness, even there can be an invitation for Christ to come with his love. One more quote from Augustine. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and you took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood. You who outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. 
You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. 